When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in partnership with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Say, a former journalist turned a young mother of two in 1992 Seoul is waiting for her husband, an engineer for a small construction company. He's late. A neighbor rushes down with the news. A high-rise downtown has collapsed, trapping hundreds inside. The same high-rise that Say's husband is working at. That disaster, which parallels the real-life Sampung department store collapse in 1995, starts the story of Hannah Michelle's novel, Excavations. Say and the book's other characters try to uncover the mystery of why this high-rise, the jewel of Seoul's skyline, unexpectedly collapsed, and who might be to blame. Hannah Michelle grew up in Seoul. She studied anthropology and philosophy at Cambridge University and now lives in California with her husband and children. She teaches in the Asian American Asian Diaspora Studies program at the University of California, Berkeley. Today, Hannah and I talk about the Sampung department store and how this event parallels her novel and what current day events inspire the development of her book. So, Hannah, thank you so much for, for coming on the show today um, to talk about excavation. Um, I wanted to start by um, connecting kind of the, the key event in your novel, which actually reflects um, an actual historical event, the Sampung department store collapse um, in South Korea. Um, I wondered if you might talk about first the historical event um, and then why you wanted to use that as the launching point for your novel. That's a great question. Thank you so much. Um, so in 1995, um, a five-story luxury department store collapsed and uh, killed 502 people and injured a 1,000 others. And um, it was the largest peacetime civilian disaster in South Korea's modern history. And investigation into the disaster revealed that um, the building had been constructed poorly with substandard materials, um, columns without sufficient structural support to prop up the floors. So um, it sort of seemed inevitable that the building would collapse. But what compounded the disaster was the fact that um, despite, you know, several warning signs like cracks in the walls and so on, um, the management refused to attend to safety protocol. And despite discussing the possibility of evacuation. Um, they did not evacuate the building of uh, 
of the the shoppers in in the store at the time for fear of losing out um, on revenue. Um, so this disaster um, really is is a stark reminder of the human toll of what happens when compressed development is prioritized over safety. And um, so originally, I had hoped to write a novel that would feel more like um, uh, an artist of the, the floating world written by Kazuo Ishigaru, um, where you have an artist reflecting on with some pride on their work. And then, you know, as the story goes on, um, the reader is made aware that actually this work is not um, valued socially. Um, and so I wanted to do something similar with this chairman character. He's the chairman of um, a major uh, construction company. And then um, over the course of the novel, I thought maybe, um, and then also with the collapse of this department store, he would uh, have to confront that maybe his business practices were not um, were not as excellent as he would like to think. Um, I just so actually the 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 inclusion of um, the aspirational tower collapse um, didn't really occur to me until three years into this this writing project, um, but it really felt to me, like the perfect metaphor for um, what happens uh, um, when you prioritize, in capitalism, when you prioritize um, expedient, um, yeah, development over uh, over human safety. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's really interesting that, that, that you talk about how um, you kind of rapidly pivoted the book to, um, I guess, from kind of dealing with the chairman. I know parts of that are, are in the book now. Um, but now the book is, um, again, it's, it's a very, it's, it's a very great, very, um, well plotted out, uh, I guess like investigative thriller with, um, with say your protagonist kind of at its core as its central protagonist. Um, you know, she's a new mother, former journalist, kind of unsure of her, of her place in life, um, and her family. And then, um, because of this tragic event, she kind of then stumbles upon um, this much larger uh, conspiracy, I'll say, I'll use that term. Um, but but what kind of character did, did you want to convey um, through your through your protagonist, say? And if I'm not saying the name wrong, please, please forgive me. No, no, um, that's right. I um, It was important to me to have a character who um, was trying to understand the value of mothering. So at the beginning of the novel, Say has recently given up her work as a journalist and she's caring for her two young children. And this comes after years of uh, political involvement um, as a student protester during um, the late 80s. And I think she's still trying to make sense of the value of what it means to be a mother in the sense uh, that she feels both essential and yet increasingly invisible. So she's this, she was this idealistic young person who I think only envisioned change um, in overtly political terms. Um, And I don't think say at any moment really considered the political power of mothering. Um, And uh, so when Jay disappears, uh, it forces say to become uh, to transition into becoming a single mother. And she really struggles to maintain the balance between 
her commitment to the truth and her responsibilities um, as a mother. And um, I really wanted to force uh, this sort of stark choice because I wanted to show how under patriarchy, mothers, and especially single mothers, really face impossible choices um, and have to choose uh, between their sort of uh, community commitments and um, their responsibilities to their children. If there's another, um, if there's a second protagonist uh, in Excavations, um, it's Myung Hee, who is, um, I guess, the madam behind uh, Karaoke Parlor, um, which is also engaging in a number of, uh, well, it is a place for sex work and also for corporate espionage. Um, But I, I guess, why did you want to kind of bring that to as part of, um, as like a central protagonist and a central location in your story? Yeah. Um, thanks for the question. I So as I said before, you know, I really wanted this novel to kind of reflect on the growth of the Korean economy, but personified through, um, through this chairman character. Um, but as I thought about it, you know, it's really difficult or it would be a mistake to not incorporate some discussion of, um, you know, corporate culture um, and these informal spaces uh, where men do business. Um, And room salon culture is really an extension of um, Korean militarized masculinity where men sort of bond through participating in in group rights. Um, And it's like a place where men can unwind and blow off steam and it sort of um I think it's like a safety valve in some ways because it's a space where men can get drunk and can say things to their superiors and be forgiven the next day um but anyway in most films or dramas or novels um which represent these spaces women are either completely invisible or objectified and um so I was really curious about what it would feel like to see these spaces through the lens of, of the women who work there. And, um, and, you know, the other thing is that Myungi herself is also an entrepreneur. And, um, you know, though this industry is not uh, considered respectable socially, um, I wanted to imagine what it would be like if she could reclaim some power for herself um, by really uh, paying attention and being observant to the kinds of information that circulates in 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 these rooms yeah i mean i she's she's probably the smartest character in the book um, <laughs> yeah um well i mean you you mentioned the the protest movement when you were talking about you know, um backstory um i wonder if you might talk a little bit more about about what those protests were um and kind of why you want to include this uh this political background um in the lives of of well as as part of this story um, oh, yeah. So um, originally I had a sort of single point of view, which was the the chairman's um, point of view. And after a while, I realized you couldn't, um, in order to portray this character as being unreliable, I needed to show some of the tension points or um, his narrative needed to be challenged in some way. And um, I think the, the student... Um, democratization movement is an important counterpoint because it really shows that there was um, some resistance against um, this very 
ambitious economic agenda that um, the dictator had. Um, and, um, you know, the students were really um, campaigning against labor exploitation and um, what they um, essentially viewed as being slavery, as well as human rights abuses and, and torture uh an arrest of anyone who kind of spoke out against uh, the dictatorship. And so, um, you know, the participants of of the student democratic movement really had many different paths um, over over the course of that movement. Some dropped out of university to pursue factory work. Um, Others were arrested and tortured. Um, others, after uh, democratization in 1987, turned to the arts to continue to explore inequality and socially conscious themes in their work. Um, and an interesting fact is that Pong Juno, the, the director of Parasite, he was actually a student protester um, at Yonsei University um, in the 80s. Um, and I, can, I think you can see um, his set of politics very transparently in his work. You know, we, you've mentioned the, the chairman of the Tehan group a few times. I, and I want to talk about the company in a second. Um, but I do want to kind of ask about what you were thinking as you were writing the chairman. I didn't know that, 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 he, that his point of view was arguably kind of what, what started this whole process, even as the book changed a lot as time goes on. Um, and his sections are written quite differently from the rest of the book. It's first person, um, kind of personal narrative. Um, so I guess what what kind of character were you trying to portray in in the chairman um, and kind of and, and writing his section in a different in, in in quite a different style from from the rest of the book? Ah, okay. So I when I first started researching or thinking about how to write this book, I read a number of uh, biographies and autobiographies written by. Uh, the chairman of well-known Korean um, conglomerate companies. And one thing that I really was struck by was how persuasive um, the voice of these chairmen were. They're very charismatic people um, who are proud to share the wisdom of how they've overcome, you know, their sort of very humble um, circumstances to create these major companies. And, um, I really wanted to create a character who was incredibly likable um, and who the, the reader would sort of feel connected to in some way. Um, and then sort of I want I almost wanted the reader to feel a bit betrayed by the end because um, they sort of liked the character and um, and maybe were disappointed that they were so unreliable. And that was also because, you know, one of the um, biographies that I read was written by the chairman of a company that embezzled millions of uh, of dollars. Um, but obviously, you don't see that in that's not addressed at all in the biography. So I thought that was so interesting. Well, again, maybe to kind of pivot from that to talking about um, about the Tehan Group itself and. You know, you, you, you read excavations and it's just present everywhere, this this company. Um, it's got its fingers and everything. Um, it seems to weigh on the minds of its executives as much as the, the protagonists um, in the novel, like the guys who go to the karaoke parlor are all seem very even oppressed by the company that they work for. Um, 
and I guess how much how much does does your portrayal of the Tehan group kind of reflect uh, you know corporate power in Korea, how these big companies, um, how, how these chaebol are, are structured, uh, how they treat their workers and their executives. Um, how much of how much of how much of kind of the Tehan group and its presence in your book reflects kind of the present like the place of the company in Korea? Um, yeah, I think Taehyung Group in the novel is sort of a, a an amalgamation of different historic and existing chebol companies. Um, and it's more a metaphor for the kind of corporate logic that has dominated um, with its special relationship to the government, um, the certain, the yeah, and the sort of privileges that these companies also had um, with access to really cheap loans um, but then also the pressures of delivering to expedient and um, ambitious deadlines. Um, I think it's really important to stress, or I can't stress enough really, um, just how powerful these companies are because they are conglomerates. They do sort of, you know, a construction company like Tehan Group also has uh, an arm, you know, in media, for example, or... um, might even be like a car making company. Um, so, it, it, you know, it is really uh, has a presence in sort of every industry. And um, I think, and, you know, in a place like uh, California, you know, startup culture is is really vibrant, but I don't think it's, um, there is that kind of equivalent in, in Korea. I mean, a little bit more than there used to be. But I think it's also interesting to think about how at one time the government really subsidized the growth of these companies. And now it seems that the Chebel are more powerful um, than the government itself. And that's something to kind of worry about, I think. So the third, like the, the third act of your novel um, features a time jump where they, where you could have moved to something much closer to the present day. It's not quite the present day, but um, but something much more recognizable. Um, I guess, is there is there is there a reason you want to kind of have that that third act be um, in the late 2010s, um, as opposed to, I guess, ending your story um, in the, I guess, ending your story, um, you know, decades earlier? Um, why, why include this time jump? Um. So a large part of this novel was written during Trump, the Trump presidency. And during that time, I really couldn't imagine a happy resolution for my female characters. It was really only after the end of the presidency that I realized that many of the challenges of speaking truth to power often are not, um, they don't, they're not resolved or these challenges don't disappear overnight, but often you need years and years to pass um, for um, progress to really occur. And jumping forward to a more contemporary moment also really felt important because of how history seemed to be repeating itself in Korea in 2013, when the former dictator's daughter, Park geun was elected president. And then in 2017, there was this uprising against her her leadership, and uh, and then subsequently she was impeached. And it felt like this really appropriate moment um, 
where there was an opportunity for my protagonist to attempt to expose the truth again. So that's sort of one part of it. But um, I think jumping forward in time was also important in terms of character development. I wanted to show through, say, disintegration that there are mental and emotional costs to activism. We sort of think of, we sort of idealize social activists as being, you know, tireless and and determined. Um, but I really wanted to examine the factors which bring activists to a breaking point. Uh, without giving too much away, say, supported by Myungi. And um, I thought I felt like this is really important to convey that sometimes the most important social changes occur in community and through nourishing relationships. Yeah, no, I, 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 I won't spoil anything either, but, um, but uh, you're right that, that say does, does clearly pays a cost for activism and um, is rescued by, uh, by Milky. And that's actually a good segue, I think, to, um, to another question I had, which is uh, all the characters that, that, that push the plot forward, um, are women, um, mostly say and Yoon-hee, but also kind of other, uh, but also other other characters um, in the book as well, um, you know. And I guess it, similar question is, is something about about um, the place that women had in Korean society at that time um, that made you want to kind of put these characters forward as the guys as the people who are really driving. Um, driving the story again. The male characters in the book are all kind of useless; <laughs> they don't do very much. Um, so, there's something something about 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 the place of women in Korea that that made you want to kind of put them forward as the ones who are driving the story forward. Um, I think, in a way, this novel is a bit of a response to a film that I really like, but I also have some problems with. Um, there's a film called um, Ode to My Father. That was a blockbuster hit in Korea. And it's the story of a boy who loses his father in the Korean War, and then he becomes the head of his household at age you know, nine. And then he experiences Korea's rapid economic growth um, and ends up going to work as a miner in Germany and then as a contractor in Vietnam uh, during the Vietnamese war or the war in Vietnam. And, um, you know, this is really like a very moving story, but the, the contributions of, of women and the, the women's lives during this historical moment uh, are noticeably absent. So I, in writing excavations, I really wanted to recenter the narrative to show women's lives and struggles during significant historical moments, such as during the student democratization movement. And also to show, you know, there's only just like a a moment, but to show tensions between, you know, a a social movement, movement like the student, um, uh, student protests, but also how women uh, had more, uh, uh, what, what's, what am I trying to say? They're, um, less privileged and sort of feminism is not important um, or is thought of as somehow um, less of a concern than democracy. Um, but I I did take some liberties. I really uh, wanted my characters to be more empowered than I think might be historically accurate um, because ultimately I wanted to imagine the possibilities. Again, I was writing this at 
the height of the Me Too movement and during the Trump presidency. And I really wanted to write a story that imagines the possibilities for political change when women work to support each other. I'd like to um, invite you, if, if you if you'd like to kind of perhaps do a short reading um, from your novel. Um, and, you know, I'll let you explain kind of where it is in the book, kind of, kind of the importance in the in in the story. Um, and then let you let you let you share share some pages from from your book um okay so this is a from the chapter relapse uh which happens later in the book um but i think given our discussion of um the collapse of sampung department store um i think it feels uh, appropriate so um i don't think you need much more context than that actually 1992 It is summer when it happens, on a day ripe and fragrant with promise. The sunshine is like a reassuring hand on the shoulders of those who walk on the streets below. No one expects the worst, not in the cocooning humidity or the stark light of day. A street vendor closes up his cigarette stall by the subway station. The pressing need to urinate lifts him from his chair and into the searing sun. He crosses the street to use the restrooms in the skyscraper rising high across the street, To look up to try to see its peak is to be filled with vertigo. Aspiration Tower is half a place of commerce, half a monument, a museum of the country's rise to might. Office workers come down from their offices on the upper floors to shop in beautiful boutique shops during their lunch hour. Wealthy housewives buy expensive pre-made panchan in the supermarket on the basement floor. Even those who cannot afford the grandly priced luxuries wander in to stand in the warm light of the atrium to feel a part of this celebration of space. Busloads of excited children arrive on their field trips. They admire the panoramic view of their densely packed city nestled in the crooked arm of majestic mountains. Their teachers will search the horizon, squinting to pinpoint the neighborhoods of their childhoods, only to find that they have been ground down. The dust has collected to form the foundations of austere apartment blocks. In their shadow and out of view are the shanty towns with water-stained facades under the low hang of power lines. Seoul is a woman with a past who hides her scars under a garish dress. The street vendor steps inside and stares at an elaborate window display set up as a savannah scene. Two mannequins, a man and a woman dressed in khaki from head to toe, stand around a stack of progressively smaller suitcases. He is sure he will never go where these people are supposed to be going. It is a practical reality that has not saddened him until now. Suddenly, he is mesmerized, longing balloons inside him for a foreign life beyond his reach. For the first time, he feels a sense of loss, homesick in a way he doesn't understand. Staggering backward, he bumps into a young housewife carrying two large bags filled with food for the week. Watch where you're going, she says. He carries the look of disgust in her her eyes as he goes down the escalator to the basement level, to the men's restrooms. He lingers longer than he ordinarily would, examining himself in the mirror, seeing himself through her eyes. His poverty stuck in his cheap worn t-shirt and black plastic sandals. The sight of his reflection fills him with a deep shame. Several levels above him, a low groan echoes through the hollow chamber of the building. 
A small child sits frozen, strapped in his stroller, wide-eyed, feeling afraid, convinced that it is the sound of a monster that his mother assured him does not exist. It's just a cartoon, she had said, not real. None of the other shoppers seem to share his terror. A few stop and survey the high glass ceilings of the atrium. Most of them are conscious of the noise, but give it only a second's thought, otherwise soothed by the sounds of a pop song crooning over the speakers. Among them is a, is a recently retired elderly man. It is not the whine of the building that has stopped him, but the realization of what he must do to try to save his marriage. Since he has begun spending more time at home, he cannot help but feel his wife is irritated with him. He wants to buy her a gift, a belated apology for having spent so many hours at the office. Hearing the groan of the building, he looks up, but does not expect to ex but does not expect the worst to happen. In his mind, disasters happen to those whose lives are summarized in contracted form in the papers, defined by career title and number of surviving family members. It does not happen to a man like him who has worked for years at a tire manufacturing company and has gone from living in a slum to a house with a corrugated iron roof to a high-rise apartment overlooking the River Han. Like many others, He's come to conflate maturity with affluence, the promise that from now on, things can only get better. So what stops him in his tracks is not the calamitous noise, but the sight of a slim gold watch. It is perfect. What could be more symbolic, he thinks, than a watch to say that he wants to make up for lost time. The walls of the building shudder. A shower of dust falls across the atrium. Shoppers look up. They see there's construction going on across the street and eagerly discard their worries. They mutter to themselves, the management of a landmark building should take care to treat their customers better. But when the ground beneath their feet begins to vibrate, a common worry begins to coagulate, blame inching away from the building's managers toward a larger, more serious cause, a disaster beyond the building, an invasion. This is technically a country still at war, but as the dust spills from the ceiling, it feels more like an earthquake. Necklaces and bottles and diamonds and imported bottles of whiskey begin to quiver and shake on the shelves. The noise the falling dust makes is somewhere between a hiss and a snare drum and rapidly drowned out by the deafening moan coming from the roof above them. In the basement, moments before the lights cut out, Jay puts his hand to the wall feels the vibrations, and immediately understands what is about to happen. They have run out of time. This building is now about to collapse under the weight of its own ambition. There are now many things that will never be set right. Things are about to come to an end before he has had a chance to correct his mistakes. This is not entirely true. He has had many chances. He thinks of Say, waiting for him to come home. The love he has carried for her like a guilty secret the giggles of his children, their trust that he will return as he leaves them in the morning. He is about to become a missing name in the index of history, a memory, a speck of light that arrives from a dying star. Frantically, he reaches for the door. It may not be too late. There may be time for one last call. He reaches in the darkness, just as he had reached for her cheek that first night in the library. It was the first time he had felt it, his heart near exploding in his chest how much he had longed to believe in the kind of love she offered. But nothing in his life, 
has shown him he could trust a redemptive love that sees all and forgives. As he reaches for the door, the first piece of concrete gives way. Above him, in the atrium, the first block falls on several young women, office workers. A mushrooming cloud of dust rises in its wake. In confusion, people press themselves against the walls before the rush for the exit begins. Heavy air conditioning units begin to fall from the roof as it caves in. In less than 10 seconds, all 65 floors of the building collapse like a sinkhole. Cement blocks crack teeth and skulls. Rib cages are flattened like cardboard boxes. Femurs shattered. Watch faces broken. The hands of clocks frozen at 5.30 p.m. In less than a second, ambitions contract like an iris against sudden light. He is alone now, in the darkness, his arms pinned under the weight of something heavy and damning. Even as, others, even as other desires shrink back, Jay finds himself doing as he has done every day, bargaining for one more day, to savor the unexpected gift of a life borrowed, tiny wonders that he never deserved. All he asks for is one more day, to feel say pressing a cold beer, can against his cheek on a too hot day, to see the dancing light in her eyes when he enters the room, to feel a squeeze of Hunmin's arms around his thigh, Sungmin's slender arms around his waist, Appa, don't go, to be the one to tell her, I'm sorry, to have the luxury of knowing that after today, there's always tomorrow, the promise of forgiveness in the days ahead. So I think that's a great place to end our interview with Hannah Michelle author of her new novel, Excavations. Um, Hannah, I actually have two final questions for you, which are, uh, uh, which are, um, where can people find your work, all of your work, not just this book? And uh, what's next for you? What do you think the next project might be? Um, uh, so uh, you can find Excavations at most bookshops, I think. Um, and um, I think it would be great to support independent bookshops uh, if possible. I believe that The Defections, my first novel, is uh, available in the UK. Um, and in terms of my next project, I'm in the very early stages of uh, writing a new novel. Um, but I'm not sure that I um, uh, have a elevator pitch for it yet. Um, it's still very much in, in, um, in fragmented form. Well, good luck, and 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 I hope um, I hope I hope uh, things come together with that with that new novel. Um, you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R I Gordon. That's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural, and you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network and NewBooksNetwork.com. We're on all our favorite podcast apps: Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those running in, around, and about Asia. Um, stay tuned for more news and who's coming up on the show. But before then, Hannah, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me.